It was a hot July summer, and our family was uh, wanting to get out of the city. So we're going to head up to Long Forest. And uh, I won't tell you the age of the children, and that'll make sense as the story continues. Uh, so uh, we're there with another family, good family, friends. They're in the cabin next door. We are rough, we are, we're roughing it. We're not glamping, that glamour, whatever, camping thing. No, no, no. We're, we're bringing our own stuff, the food, all the things, and we are roughing it, campfire food, all that. And uh, we're there for a few days, and uh, our kids still talk about this moment, uh, like this, the, the time away with this family. It was a great time. And after lunch, um, I was on, like, kid patrol. That family has four kids. We had the three kids. And I was kind of watching that. And, like, how hard is it to keep track of three kids, like Sophie, Annie, and Benjamin? Well, on my shift, <clears throat> Benjamin somehow wanders off. And uh, so there, any parent who's, you know, kids are kind of missing, you kind of know it sort of starts in here. You're like, Benjamin. And they're sort of, Benjamin. Like, we're here, Benjamin. And then it starts to escalate. Benjamin. So try to figure out. And Beth is helping. We're trying, everybody's kind of looking for Benjamin. And little Benjamin, he's wandered down the little pathway out towards the front. And uh, we're in this foreign country, whatever. And they start to speak to him in English, this, this couple. And he kind of gets, whatever, that's English. I don't know that. And then he kind of turns around and heads back. Our way, and they're, Benjamin, oh, Benjamin. And there's this big Lord of knowing glance between Beth and me as Beth picks up Benjamin and kind of looks at me. And... <laughs> he was safe. And he was sound. And uh, I start with that. Because can you imagine, uh, we went to Long Forest again, but this time, uh, some of the, 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 the wives, they got to stay home, and we, the dads took the kids out there with some other families, and uh, it, we were there a couple years later. This part is not true, but can you imagine? It happens again, and I pick up the phone <laughs> and need to call Beth and say that we're missing Benjamin again. Hey, Beth, how's it going? Uh, it's me, John. Um, just want to let you know that Benjamin is missing again, but it's okay. We still have Sophie and Annie. <laughs> now, how helpful is that? How helpful is that. And as someone was sort of explaining the story, it's like you're engaged, and the, like the fiance calls his fiance, hey, and she's like, what's going on? Well, I've lost your ring, but I still have your, my cell phone. And I start with that because we are in Luke chapter 15, and this whole theme of lost and found is one of these metaphors that Jesus uses quite often in the chapter 15 of Luke to talk about sin and salvation, being lost and being found. And we are in this series on the prodigal. And we're going to do things a little out of order. This is the, actually the prodigal uh, version of the older brother, the unprodigal brother. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And I want to welcome in everybody who's here and those uh, in from uh, watching. I want to wish a happy birthday to my good buddy there, Bill Burnett. Happy birthday, Bill. And hopefully there, when Daniel sees me, yeah, that's good. Uh, for those also uh, born on December 5th, uh, apologies to that. Hopefully there's not going to be this policy you can't send birthday wishes from the stage anymore after that. Happy birthday, Bill. All right, so we are in Luke chapter 15. 
And the setting here is that there are two groups of people at this moment, and you see them there in verses one and two. And for the balance of our time together, the two audience members, like two groups of audience, over here are going to be the tax collectors and the sinners. And they're pressing in. What does it say there? It says that they are there and they've come. They're drawing near to what? Hear Jesus. And so they're pressing in. They have a need and they want to press in to hear the words of Jesus. On this side, you have the other crowd in the audience. And that is, what does it say there? The tax collector. No, it's the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're not necessarily pressing in at all. They're standing back and they're keeping their distance. Social distancing. And they're back over that way. They're not pressing in. Luke 15 starts here with verse 1. Luke 14, the very last portion of Luke 14, there's a statement made, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners are leaning in to hear the words of Jesus. The Pharisees are not leaning in. They're quite satisfied with how good they are, and they're actually repelled at what they see with Jesus. And they are grumbling and they are complaining. And what are they grumbling and complaining about? Why does this man spend time with sinners, receives sinners, welcomes sinners? And so when Jesus hears this, he actually tells them, I'm gonna tell you a parable. I'm gonna tell you a parable. And what you're interested, what's interesting about the parable, and as we look at what the parable is, a parallel, and this is not my idea, someone said this to me, and by the way, there's a lot of content that came from other people when I say this author, that author, that communicator, there's just a bunch of people I'm, I'm gathering from, and someone said it this way, this is what a parable is. A parable is something that is untrue, that is used to illustrate something that is true. And Jesus was the master teacher. And Jesus says, okay, 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 stop up. I've got, on this side, I've got these tax collectors and sinners, they're leaning in and wanting to hear. At the very same time, I have the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not leaning in, they're leaning back, and they're actually grumbling and they're complaining because I receive sinners. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say, I'm gonna give them a parable. I'm actually gonna give them three parables. These parables are made up stories. Untrue, but I'm trying to get to the truth. And here's what Jesus wants you to understand both groups. I want you to understand the grace of God. The grace of God. And that is the basic truth of what he wants to do during this time. And so Jesus at that time decides, I'm gonna tell three different stories, completely made up stories. And the idea is if you're listening here, I wanna to say to you that it's not about how bad you are and you feel so alienated from God that God will never accept you we're gonna to talk to you about grace, that it's not performance minus your bad behavior. Lean in. Pharisees over here, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're muttering, and over here, you guys think you're so good already that God can't do anything but already accept you because you're so good. So I'm gonna tell a couple of parables that are gonna be good. Three parables about that theme, and the unity of that theme is the truth of all that, and I want you to know the truth of that is what? Number one, God seeks out sinners. Number one, God seeks out sinners. All three of these parables have that theme together. And Andrew, you can go to the next slide. As you talk about that, you, he has the three parables. The sheep, the silver, coin, and the sun, sons. Because we're gonna find out they're, you know, they're both lost. 
So you've got the sheep, you've got the, uh, the silver coin, and over here you've got the sons. And in these three stories, the unifying thought is this. God seeks out sinners, and number two, God rejoices over what? When they are restored and when they repent. The theme in each one of these parables are those two thoughts. God seeks out sinners. God rejoices over restoration and repentance. Now, in this first story of the sheep, he gets to the theme of there is such a desire, there's nothing that the shepherd won't do as far as going to find. He will, he'll suffer for it. He will go and he will seek and he will try to find the sheep. And he will take it and he will bring back the sheep. And then what does it say there? It says something very specific. It says there'll be great rejoicing. Verse uh, number seven, Luke 15 verse seven says this. After the sheep is found, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Silver coin, it's all about the thoroughness of looking for the lost coin. When it's found, it says, it says the very same thing it said in verse seven, it says, just so I tell you there's more joy before the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. And the very last verse in Luke 15, when the father speaks to the older brother and says it's fitting that we celebrate and we're glad. Verse 32, it was fitting that we celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he's found. The three key themes, three made up stories about the truth of that God seeks out sinners and that God rejoices over repentance and restoration. Now, which is interesting, and Wayne read it for us this morning, Luke chapter five, there's the very same thing happening. Pause, we're not gonna turn back there, but Luke chapter five is this. Levi gets called, the tax collector. He throws a big party. Who's at the big party? Tax collectors and sinners, this crowd. Who's also at the party? It's the Pharisees and the, uh, the scribes, and they're there, and what are they doing in chapter five? They're still mumbling, they're still grumbling. Why does this guy, he actually speaks to the disciples, why does Jesus receive sinners? And Jesus tells in Luke chapter five, he tells them a parable. No, no, he doesn't say a parable. He doesn't take a whole chapter 15 to tell three different parables. He simply answers the question. Luke chapter five, verse 31 and 32, this is what he says to them. And Jesus answered the grumpy, complaining Pharisees and tax collectors, why do you receive sinners? He says to them, not a parable, I'm just gonna give you a little one word answer, or one sentence answers. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, the master teacher, decides when this crowd needs the parable. No, simple answer. But over here in Luke 15, we're going to tell you the stories of the parable. And today, we're in Luke chapter 15, and it's the parable of the lost son. Now, there's going to be a speaker come along, I think his name is Daniel. He's going to talk about the younger son. Today, we're talking about the older brother. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, or check it on the screen? And we're looking at Luke chapter 15, verse 25, because that's where we meet the older brother. The older brother. Where is the older brother? Now, the other son is in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
the older son in the field. He's hardworking, he's dutiful, he's law-abiding, he's obedient, and he's in the field. Now, the older son is about to get a bad reputation among the storytellers because the Pharisees are like, Jesus is talking about us there. But let me just pause for just a moment. Being dutiful is a good thing, right? All the employers, and like we have employers here, you want your employees to be quite dutiful. You want them to be hardworking, and you're trying to instill in them a work ethic, and you want good employees. But the problem is, he's a little too dutiful, we're gonna to get to what that is. Now, a little pause, because I wanna to speak to the parents in the crowd. Because as a parent, you're always looking for what? You're always looking for opportunities and in ways that you can instill work ethic into your children. And uh, I remember my dad uh, believed that work ethic was what? You weren't born with it, you actually had, it was something you had to learn. And being faithful to any kind of commitment, you had to have some certain sense of dutifulness. So uh, I'm 16 years old at the time, it's a Sunday, and uh, late that Sunday afternoon there was a big snowstorm in the Markham area. Lots of snow, lots of snow on our driveway, snow, and everybody else's driveway. And my parents are up, my dad's speaking at some church in the morning, takes my, my mom and they were together, and my dad calls, no cell phones, he just calls his 16-year-old son who's home. Why well, he didn't call like the 14-year-old sister, but he calls me, the dutiful son, and he says, John, I want you to make sure the driveway is shoveled out before your mom and I come home because I won't be able to get the car into the driveway because of the big storm and all the snow and the snow plows are gonna come by. Yeah, you need to get that shoveled. I said, yes, I'll shovel that. And he's not mad yet, but he's not mad. He's just, he's, he's clarifying what he wants, right? So any 16-year-old who's in this crowd today and any 16-year-old, and, and you just kind of know what a 16-year-old does. He says yes, hangs up the phone, and then goes back and watches NFL football. And every parent who goes away for the night, you tell your kids to do something, and they, the kids are like, they, they get, they're masterful at this. They figure out how long the parent's gonna be by, whatever the dishes need to be cleaned or whatever has to happen, and you're counting the minutes and just figure out to get it all done before they come back. That's what's going on with me. So I go out, when I go out, and it, it was a storm. There was lots of snow there, and it drifted, like Saskatchewan drifting snow. And I take my shovel, and I get started, and I'm, I'm a hardworking, dutiful 16-year-old. I'm gonna go public with that right today. <laughs> and I'm working for probably, I don't know, seven minutes. <laughs> it's hard. And my dad's gonna know it's hard. And I'm gonna tell him, I tried to do it, dad. But you know, Les, don't wreck the end of the story. And sure enough, I give it a try, and the next thing you know, I'm like, okay, this is, it's, it's cold. And I thought I could get it done at halftime, but I'm not going to be able to. So I go back in the house. Now, as a dad today, I'm thinking, what were you thinking? So sure enough, mom and dad come home, and uh, the father of the story, he comes and goes, John, and I'm like, off the couch. I, th I thought I told, I said, yeah, I tried. It, what a weak answer. I tried, but it was too hard. And my dad, John, I didn't say it was going to be easy. 
get your coat, get your boots, and come help me shovel. So I get out. We sh- it's, it takes us a long time. And we shovel, and we clear the driveway, and get the car in, and it's all over. And then as a good dad, you know, it takes a little moment, reminds me of, of what? And I wrote it down here. My dad reminded me that Sunday night that often we don't feel like doing what we don't want to do. And that isn't what we ought to do. But we do it anyway, even if it's hard. Now, that's just to let you know that dutifulness is a good thing. Now, the problem with this older brother who's in the field, he is in the field, he is being productive, he's working hard, he's trying to be hardworking, but he seems to be happiest, what? When he's away from the Father. Give me some space between me and the Father, and I will work here dutifully. And there are people in the neighborhood who've praised him and admired him. He was probably, in their minds, the model son. But the older fa- uh, brother we're going to know, and we're going to find out here very quickly, he shows that his obedience to his father is nothing but duty all the way down. There is no joy, and there is no love, no reward in just trying to please his dad. It's all about performance. And so he's in the field, and when he's there, he decides it's time to work is done. He now, what, he, what, he did, what does he do? He turns towards home, and as he came and drew near to the house, he hears music and dancing. So the party's already gone into full swing. It's already happening. And he's not sure what's going on there. He's a little bit confused. So he calls one of the servants, and he's asked one of the servants what these things mean. And the servant answers the question and says, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received your, your brother back safe and sound. Just the facts. Very concise answer. What's the music and dancing about? I'll just answer the question. Very concise. Can you imagine with me what that servant would have done had he said, you know what, I want to give you a little more detail about the whole killing the fattened calf. Let's go back in Luke 15 to verse 22. This is that moment when the son comes home and the dad says what the dad says. And he says, the father says in verse 22, Luke 15, he says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. What one word in the midst of that verse would the older brother not want to hear? It's an adverb. Quickly. What do you mean, my father, quickly asked that these, th- these three things happen? The Pharisees and the older brother kind of take the posture of arms crossed. What do you mean, quickly? Let's just see how this is going to turn out. Let's see if this younger brother is actually sincere. I think he just ran out of money, and that's why he's back. The anger at which he is responding to the news that his brother is home. So the very wise young servant did not include the part about the quickly, because it would have made him even further mad. That's my own sort of thrown in on that. Now, let's go back to verse 28. When this news comes... The older brother has a choice to make. At that very moment, he can be very happy, he can join the celebration, and he can participate in his father's joy. Verse 28, verse, or first word, but he was, say it with me, one, two, three, 
angry. He was angry and refused to go in, period. And his father came out and treated him. Let's camp out on this part about he was angry. He was angry. Outwardly, the older brother is what? He's faultless, law-abiding, all the things. But as soon as he's confronted with, again, made-up story to do it, illustrate the truth. The truth is what? The grace of God in the life that God is seeking sinners and he rejoices when they come back. That whole truth, as soon as he's confronted with that truth, the older brother, he now becomes almost like what? One of the superheroes, he is just, with anger, he's just exploding, you know, and he takes whatever, and he's resentful, he's proud, he's unkind, he's selfish, and he defaults to what the Pharisees and the scribes are saying. Why does my father receive sinners and wants to eat with them? And the Pharisees are very much aware that Jesus is telling the story about them. He's very angry. At this moment, the Incredible Hulk is so angry that at this moment, he, we're trying to figure out what's happening here. There was a moment when this actual return of the younger son came. And it was captured in a painting, an oil painting, by Rembrandt. Maybe you've seen this before. It sits in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. And it is there, and it is painted by Rembrandt, that 17th century Dutch reform, or Dutch, reform, Dutch uh, painter. And it's that very moment when the younger son comes back. And you see there that the younger son is kneeling in front of his father. He's asking for forgiveness, and the father has just got his arms wrapped. He's showing compassion. He embraces his son, showing him mercy. But what do you notice about the placement of that great scene? It's off what? to the left side of the canvas. The return of the prodigal son. Shouldn't it be like right in the center of the canvas? Oh no, no. Rembrandt is trying to make the point that there are two lost sons here. Off to this side, your left side right here, is that beautiful moment of the younger son and the father. And over on the right side, this dominating tall, stern figure of the older brother. Just presence right there. He appears, what, withdrawn. He's not reaching out, not smiling. No expression of welcome. He keeps his distance. He just simply stands there, posture straight. And he's, as you see there, there's a platform, and he's off to the edge of the platform. And there's no desire to come up onto the platform and join in in the welcome of his younger brother. And one pastor wrote this, the older brother has spent his whole life as what? An insider. Always done what was right, stood by his father. But now, when this younger son has received grace, he can't accept it. Now, he's literally, older brother, looking at it from a distance, and the positions have now been reversed because of the hardness of his heart. Luke 15, verse 28, but he was angry, and he refused to go in. 
why was the older brother angry? Why were, Luke 1, 2, why were the Pharisees standing over here to the side, being represented by the older brother, why are they muttering, grumbling, complaining that this man receives sinners? Jesus at this moment, as he tells the story, he says, Pharisees, why are you grumbling? I've already said I've come to seek and to save the lost. Remember Luke, 50, or Luke 19, verse 10? The story of Zacchaeus? What did I say? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. And there's going to be great joy when that happens. And when you see that great joy, Pharisees and scribes, why are you so angry? Answer, they wanted God's what? God's judgment on that son and not his mercy. One author wrote this, one simple statement. The older son was what? This is great. He was out of sympathy. Out of sympathy with the heart of his father. What happens when you and I relate to God the same way the older brother relates to his father? There is a story here before us. It's a made-up story of the parable of the lost sons. Where are you in this story? And we're asking the question, are we like the prodigal older brother, the unprodigal older brother. And one author that we read a lot about is Henry Nouwen, and Henry Nouwen has written about this moment, and he says this, which is quite convicting. He asks the question, why am I getting so angry when I see a display of grace? There are times I catch myself complaining, this is him writing, about little rejections, little impolitenesses, little negligences. Time and time I discover within me the murmuring, the whining, the grumbling, the lamenting, the griping. I remember, he says, just recently, a friend of mine who had become a Christian criticized me for not being very prayerful. Not being very prayerful. His criticism made me, Luke chapter 15, verse 28, but the older brother became angry. <laughs> but he became angry. I said to myself, how dare he teach me a lesson about prayer? For years I have lived a carefree, sorry, for years he has lived a carefree, undisciplined life, while I, since childhood, have lived scrupulously, lived the life of faith. Now he's converted and starts telling me how to behave. This inner resentment reveals to me my own lostness. I'd stayed home and didn't wander off, but I had not yet lived a free life in my father's house. And you have that moment when the older brother sees this display of mercy. And a great practical question that someone gave me is when do you have the spirit as in the, the uh, reality of being the older brother? Ask this very practical question. When you see whatever it is you see, something, a display of God's mercy on the life of somebody. What is your first reaction to what that is? Is it mainly condemnation, judgment on that? 
or is it a sense of compassion? When good things happen to, you know, people who are quite, you know, your description. They're not good people, or they're sinful people, or whatever you have for that description. How do we relate to that context? So you have the older brother refusing to go in, and then you have the father. He came out, and he scolded the older brother. He commanded the older brother to get yourself into this house now. What a great word. He entreated. He pleaded. He invited him to come in to the house. The older brother is on this side representing the Pharisees and the scribes. The younger brother is on this side representing the tax collectors and sinners. The young son has come home and so the father wants to throw a party for him and the party is already in full flight and he has come back from the field and the father says, I want to invite you in, come in and participate with the joy that's here. And one author helped me understand this as he described this sort of scene, if you wanted to picture this scene. You have the father standing, and imagine you have the house, and on that side of the house is this porch. And that's where the younger son is on the porch. And on this side of the house, there's also a porch, and then you have the older brother, and he's on the porch, and he doesn't want to come in, and he's feeling like he doesn't deserve to come in. And this is what the author says. On one side of the house is the son who doesn't feel like he deserves to come to the party. And on the other side of the house is a son who agrees that the younger son doesn't deserve to come to the party. So neither of them want to come to the party. So there's the father who wants to have a celebration. Younger son, I can't go in, I don't deserve it. Older son, yeah, he's right, he doesn't deserve it. And if he goes in, I'm not going in. And he's out on the porch. Verse 29 and 30 we find the speech of the older brother. Remember the younger brother had a speech? The older brother has a speech. Verse 29 and 30 captures his speech. But he answers his father, look! It's a strong, sort of awkward, abrupt first word. Look, comma. That's how I wanna start my speech. If you remember the younger son's speech, his opening words were, Father, I've sinned. Older brother, these words just come tumbling out. They've been, they've been there, someone described it as like this frozen anger, these torrent of words, these pent up feelings, they just come tumbling out. Dis disrespectful words, they're laced with animosity and arrogance. They're attacking the father shouting, never, never, look. These many years, I have never, never disobeyed your command. Never. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends 
But when this younger son comes home, and oh, by the way, who devoured your property with prostitutes, I might add that, you killed the fattened calf, period. No, no, you killed the fattened calf for him. When we use exaggerations like never, it really does reveal the bitterness and resentment in our own house. I never disobeyed you. I want to remind you, Father, of how faithful I have been. I want to boast about that. But as he's boasting about that, he's very much revealing the underlying motivation of this. These many years. I have graciously and lovingly wanted to please you, Father. I served you. What kind of languages? I served you. Other translations. I slaved for you. <laughs> These many years, I have slaved for you. I have served you. Hardly a description of a free and spontaneous family relationship. It clearly indicates that the son doesn't know what it means to be a son and clearly can't understand why his father is who the father is. Because in his mind, as a slave for his father, servant, he sees the father what? How? as a command giver, and I will be a command keeper. And very clearly, the older son is saying, Dad, this is all about merit. It's all about performance. It has nothing to do with mercy in our relationship. Timothy Keller, in his book, writes this. He says, this younger son has operated on this principle. Look, Father, I believe that it's going to be through my own goodness and obedience that I'm going to get leverage over you, Father. I will work hard with my own exertion, my devotion, and my discipline, and I'm going to give you, Father, a righteous record, and then you, Father, you owe me. I obey Therefore, I'm accepted. Now, Timothy Keller goes on to say, it's the exact opposite. When we, as believers, accept the grace of God in our own life, and we say what? Based on the righteous record of Jesus who provided that record to God the Father, that I am accepted, I'm forgiven. Watch the sequence, and therefore I obey. So you have the angry, resentful older brother complaining, and you just sense his smoldering discontent that's happening there. He continues, but when this son of yours comes, what do you notice about that? He doesn't even acknowledge that this sibling is his sibling. 
when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son, he doesn't acknowledge that he has this brother. He can't fathom that they're actually in the same family. He says, this son of yours. Now, spoiler alert, verse 32, when the father says it's fitting to celebrate and be glad because he doesn't let it slide, the father doesn't. He says, this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive, was lost and now he's found. But at this point, the older brother says, when this son of yours comes who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for you. I just want you to know when I say who devoured your property with prostitutes, I just want you to know how much that that younger son, the lengths that younger son went to do what? To alienate and to embarrass and to offend you, Father, but you don't seem to care about that. You went, and here's the climax, and you killed a fattened calf for him. Exclamation point, him. Father, I'm the one who deserves all the admiration, all the honor. There's going to be a whole message on the role of the father, but it's tacked in here as it completes this section, verses 31 and 32. And the father said to him, verse 31, Son. What a tender word, son. You're always with me. Older brother screams, shouts, never. The father quietly whispers, always. Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. I'm not going to redo the will. All of that, it's, it's all yours. It was fitting. It was necessary. We couldn't help ourselves. When this brother of yours came and returned, we would be glad for he, we thought he was dead and now he's alive. We thought he was lost and now he's found. Tender words, you're always with me. Always. And the father is declaring over his older son, he says, I have an unqualified love that eliminates any possibility. Wait for this. You need to hear this clearly. There's no possibility that somehow I love your younger brother more than you. Can you imagine? The older brother hears this. Son, I'm always, you're always with me. And the older brother's like, did you just hear my little speech? Did you hear what all those words I said? Did, were you listening when I talked about the injustice? Were you part of that? Did, are, you, are you aware how angry I am about that? And you come back with, son, you're always with me. He can only think of the fairness of which is going on here, and his father just wants to talk about mercy. And the father says to him in this language, I need you to come to the party not because he's getting what he deserved. Listen, this isn't about performance. All that stuff you talked about with how hard you worked. This is about what? This is about proximity. <laughs> he's back. You never left. He's back. That's why I'm having this party. 
You need to go and you need to talk to your brother. Because <laughs> he's hung up on the same thing as you are. You think this party is about performance, and he thinks he's not good enough. And you think that he's also not good enough. I want you both to come in. I had to ask myself, I'm going to ask you as well, do you believe this is how the Father sees you? That older brother has difficulty understanding that this father would have come and done the same thing what he did to the younger son, embraced him, and it says there in that verse, he was filled with compassion as he embraced him. Sometimes we wonder what happened to the older brother. Did he let himself be persuaded by his father? Is he still out there on the porch? Did he finally enter in? Did he participate? Does he actually go across and embrace his brother, welcome him home? Does he actually sit down with his father and brother at the same table and enjoy a meal? We don't know. Did you notice how it just ends? 30, verse 32, it just ends. And the older brother can still make a choice against the love, that, love for or against the love that is offered to him by the father. Or will he simply walk away in anger and in disgust? What's involved for you and for me as we go through life and I mentioned the questions we ask when you see something, a display of something, are you condemning it or actually seeing it with eyes full of mercy and compassion? So you're asking yourself that question, but how do we daily return and have that sense that we are loved by the Father? What makes that love possible? And it comes down to that, that assurance, here it comes, it's an assurance of the Father's love. That deep inner conviction that the Father, wait for it, he actually wants me home. One author, as long as I doubt that I'm worth finding, as long as I'm doubting that I'm worth finding and put myself down at least that I'm less loved than my younger brothers and sisters, I cannot be found. God is looking for you. He's looking for me. He will go anywhere to find you. He loves you. He wants you to be home. He doesn't rest until he has you with him. And there will be dark voices continually saying to you, God isn't really interested in you. He actually prefers the repentant sinner who comes home after his wild escapades. He doesn't pay any attention to me who has never left his house. He takes me for granted. I'm not his favorite son or daughter. I don't expect him to give me what I want. And Pastor Daniel would remind us about our identity in Christ, the series that's going to happen here into the new year. It is that understanding of the great delight and love of God the Father. And we have that assurance. And as Henry Nyon writes, when we see other people as beloved, because that's how the God the Father sees us, we are beloved and as we can see that in them, then we can reach out and actually treat them like the younger brother and surround them and embrace them. And he concludes with this statement as we return back to the painting of the return of the prodigal son. 
And as I look again at this Rembrandt's painting of the older brother on the right side, can I imagine, can we imagine Unionville, you and your own lives, we as a church, I realize that the cold light on the older brother's face can become deep and warm and transform him totally and make him into someone who is chosen, holy, and dearly loved. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, the master teacher, who takes two very different audiences and teaches them the truth of who you are, that you are a God who seeks out sinners, and that you, God, rejoice when there is repentance and restoration. And so we thank you for that truth. Thank you for the truth of your word that you, you, you invite all of us, younger brothers, older brothers. You love us equally, and you invite us in to celebrate in the joy that's there. So work in our lives, Lord, as we continue to identify who we are in Christ. And we thank you for the church and the, the teaching that here that affirms that. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.